Section 51 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 51. Italy and the West. 410 to 476 by Ernest Barker. Chapter 14, Part 5. Aspar indeed failed in the event to buy security, even at the price he had been willing to pay. In 471, Leo attempted a coup d'etat. Aspar fell, and the victorious emperor, who had already been recruiting Isaurians within his own empire, in order to counteract and eventually supersede the dangerous influence of the German mercenaries, was able to continue his policy, and thus to preserve the independent existence of the Eastern Empire. With the West it was different. Here there was no substitute for Rissima and his Germans. Here there was no elasticity which would enable the Empire to recover, as it did in the East, from the loss of prestige and of resources involved by the disastrous failure of 468. For a time, indeed, Anthemius, with the support of the Senate, which had called him to the throne, and of the Roman party, which hated barbarian domination, struggled to make head against Rissima. The struggle partly turned on the course of events in Gaul. Here, Yorick, in 466, had assassinated his brother Theodoric II, as Theodoric had before assassinated his brother, Thorismud, a vigorous and enterprising king, the most successful of all the Visigothic rulers of Toulouse, Euric immediately began, after the failure of the expedition of 468, to take advantage of the condition of the Western Empire in order to make himself ruler of the whole of Gaul. He may have hoped to gain the aid of the Gallo-Roman nobility, who were by no means friendly to the ascendancy of Rissima and there were certainly Roman officials in Gaul, like Arvandus and Praefectus Praetorio, who lent themselves to his plans. But Anthemius and the Senate saw the danger by which they were threatened. Arvandus was brought to Rome in 469, tried by the Senate and sentenced to death. A striking instance of the activity which the Senate could still display. And Anthemius attempted to gain the support of the nobility of Gaul by giving the title of Patricius to Edicius, the son of Avitus, and the office of Prefect of Rome to Sidonius Apollinaris. In spite of these measures, however, he failed to save Gaul from the Visigoths. In 470, Euric took the field, and defeating a Roman army, gained possession of Arles and other towns as the prize of his victory. Much of Auvergne also fell into his hands, but he failed to take its chief city, Clermont, where the valour of Edicius and the exhortations of Sidonius, newly consecrated bishop of the city, inspired a stout resistance. Yet Gaul was none the less really lost, and failure in Gaul meant for Anthemius ruin in Italy. Already in 471, 
civil war was imminent. Rissima, seeing his chance, had gathered his forces at Milan, while Anthemius was stationed at Rome. Round the one was collected the army of Teutonic mercenaries. Round the other, though he was not popular in Catholic Italy, being reputed to be Hellenic and a lover of philosophy, there rallied the officials, the Senate and the people of Rome. Once more the old struggle of the Roman and barbarian parties was destined to be rehearsed. For a moment, the mediation of Epiphanius, the saintly bishop of Pavia, procured, if we may trust the account of his biographer Anodius, a temporary peace. But in 472, war came. Early in the year, Rissima marched on Rome and besieged the city with an army, in which the Scyrian Odovacar was one of the commanders. For five months the city suffered from siege and from famine. At last an army which had marched from Gaul to the relief of Anthemius, under the command of Bilima, the master of troops of that province, was defeated by Rissima, and treachery completed the fall of the beleaguered city. In July, Rissima marched into Rome, now under the heel of a conqueror, for the third time in the course of the century and Anthemius, seeking in vain to save his life, by mingling in disguise with the beggars round the door of one of the Roman churches, was detected and beheaded by Rissima's nephew, Gundabad. Once more the empire seemed destroyed. Civil war, said Pope Galasius, had overturned the city and the feeble remnants of the Roman Empire. The death of Anthemius had already been preceded by the accession of Olibrius, the husband of Valentinian's daughter, and the relative by marriage of Gaiseric. The circumstances of the accession of Olibrius are obscure. A curious story in a late Byzantine writer makes him appear in Italy during the struggle between Anthemius and Rissima, with public instructions from Leo to mediate in the struggle, but with a sealed letter to Anthemius in which it was suggested that the bearer should be instantly executed. The letter is said to have fallen to the hands of Rissima, who replied by elevating Olibrius to the imperial throne. We can only say that Olibrius came to Italy in the spring of 472, whether sent by Leo, or, as is perhaps more likely, invited by Rissima, and that he was proclaimed emperor by Rissima, before the fall of Rome and the death of Anthemius. The reign of Olibrius, connected as he was with the old Theodosian house and with the Vandal rulers of Africa, seemed to promise well for the future of the West, but it only lasted for a few months. Short as it was, it saw the death of Rissima at the end of August 472, and the elevation in his place of his nephew Gundabad, a Burgundian. But though a nominal successor took his place, the death of Rissima left a gap that could not be filled. If he was a barbarian, he had yet in his way venerated the Roman name and preserved the tradition of the Roman Empire. He had sought to be emperor-maker rather than king of Italy, and for sixteen years he had kept the empire alive in the West. Within four years of his death, the last shadow of an emperor had disappeared and a barbarian kingdom 
had been established in Italy. Olibrius died at the end of October 472. The throne remained vacant through the winter, and it was not until March of 473 that Gundabad proclaimed Glycerius emperor at Ravenna. But Gundabad soon left Italy, having affairs in Gaul, and Glycerius, deprived of his support, was unable to maintain his position. He succeeded indeed in averting one danger when he induced a body of Ostrogoths, who had entered Italy from the north-east under their king Widimir, to join their kinsmen, the Visigoths of Gaul. His position, however, had never been confirmed by the eastern emperor, and at the end of 473, Leo appointed Julius Nepos, the nephew of Marcellinus of Dalmatia, to be emperor in his place. In the spring of 474, Nepos arrived in Italy with an army. Glycerius could offer no resistance, and in the middle of June, he was captured at Portus, near the mouth of the Tiber, and forcibly consecrated bishop of Salona in Dalmatia. The accession of Nepos seemed a triumph for the Roman cause, and a defeat for the barbarian party. Once more, as in the days of Anthemius, an emperor ruled at Rome, who was the real colleague and ally of the emperor of Constantinople. And Nepos, unlike Anthemius, had the advantage of having no master of troops at his side. With the aid of the Eastern Empire, and in the absence of any successor to Rissima, Nepos might possibly hope to secure the permanent triumph of the Roman cause in the West. But the aid of the Eastern Empire was destined to prove a broken reed, and Rissima was fated to find his successor. In 475, a revolt headed by Basiliscus, drove Zeno, who had succeeded to Leo in 474, from Constantinople, and disturbed the East until 477. The West was thus left to its own resources during the crisis of its fate, and taking their opportunity, the barbarian mercenaries found themselves new leaders, and under their guidance settled its fate at their will. For the first few months of his reign, Nepos was left undisturbed, but even so he was compelled to make a heavy sacrifice and to buy peace with Yorick at the price of the formal surrender of Auvergne, to the great relief of its bishop Sidonius. In 475, however, there appeared a new leader of the barbarian mercenaries. This was Orestes, a Roman of Pannonia, who had served Attila as secretary and had been entrusted by his master, with the conduct of negotiations with the Roman Empire. On the death of Attila, he had come to Italy and having married a daughter of Romulus, an Italian of the rank of Cums, who had served under Aetius as ambassador to the Huns, he had had a successful career in the imperial service. He had risen high enough by 475 to be created Magister Militia by Nepos, and in virtue both of his official position and of a natural sympathy which his previous career must have inspired, he became the leader of the barbarian party. Once at the head of the army, he instantly marched upon Rome. Nepos, 
powerless before his adversary, fled to Ravenna, and unable to maintain himself there, escaped at the end of August 475 to his native Dalmatia, where he survived as an emperor in exile until he was assassinated by his followers in 480. At the end of October, Orestes proclaimed an emperor his son, a boy named Romulus after his maternal grandfather, and surnamed, perhaps only in derision and after his fall, Augustulus. Thus was restored the old regime of the nominal emperor, controlled by the military dictator, and for nearly a year this regime continued. But the barbarian mercenaries, the Rugi, Skiri and Heruli, were by no means contented with the old condition of things. Since the fall of Attila, they had emigrated so steadily into Italy from the northeast that they had become a numerous people, and they desired to find for themselves, in the country of their adoption, what other Germanic tribes had found in Gaul and Spain and Africa, a regular settlement on the soil in the position of hospites. They would no longer be cantoned in barracks in the Roman fashion. They desired to be free farmers, settled on the soil after the German manner, ready to attend the levy in time of need for the defence of Italy, but not bound to serve continually in foreign expeditions as a professional army. They accordingly asked of Orestes a third of the soil of Italy. They demanded that every Roman possessor should cede a third of his estate to some German hospice. It appears a modest demand when one reflects that the Visigoths settled by Constantius in southwestern Gaul in 418 had been allowed two-thirds of the soil and its appurtenant cattle and cultivators. But the session of 418 had been a matter of free grant. The demand of 476 was the demand of a mutinous soldiery. The grant of southwestern Gaul had been the grant of one corner of the empire, made with the design of protecting the rest. The surrender of Italy would mean the surrender of the home and hearth of the empire. Orestes accordingly rejected the demand of the troops. They replied by creating Odovacar, their king, and under his banner they took for themselves what Orestes refused to give. Odovacar, perhaps a Scyrian by birth, and possibly the son of a certain Edico, who had once served with Orestes as one of the envoys of Attila, had passed through Noricum, where St. Severinus had predicted his future greatness, and come to Italy somewhere about 470. He had served under Rissima in 472 against Anthemius, and by 476 he had evidently distinguished himself sufficiently to be readily chosen as their king by the congeries of Germanic tribes which were cantoned in Italy. His action was prompt and decisive. He became king on the 23rd of August. By the 28th, Orestes had been captured and beheaded at Piacenza, and on the 4th of September, Paulus, the brother of Orestes, was killed in attempting to defend Ravenna. The Emperor Romulus Augustulus became the captive of the new king, who, however, spared the life of the handsome boy and sent him to live on a pension 
in a Campanian villa. While Odovacar was annexing Italy, Yorick was spreading his conquests in Gaul, and when he occupied Marseille, Gaul, like Italy, was lost. The success of Odovacar did not, however, mean the erection of an absolutely independent Teutonic kingdom in Italy, or the total extinction of the Roman Empire in the West, and it does not, therefore, indicate the beginning of a new era. In anything like the same sense as the coronation of Charlemagne in 800. It is indeed a new and important fact that after 476 there was no Western Emperor until the year 800, and it must be admitted that the absence of any separate Emperor of the West vitally affected both the history of the Teutonic tribes and the development of the papacy during those three centuries. But the absence of a separate emperor did not mean the abeyance of the empire itself in the West. The empire had always been, and always continued in theory to be, one and indivisible. There might be two representatives at the head of the imperial scheme, but the disappearance of one of the two did not mean the disappearance of half of the scheme. It only meant that for the future one representative would stand at the head of the whole scheme, and that this scheme would be represented somewhat less effectively in that part of the empire which had now lost its separate head. The scheme itself continued in the West, and its continued existence was acknowledged by Adovacar himself. Zeno now became the one ruler of the empire, and to him Odovacar sent the imperial insignia of Romulus Augustulus, while he demanded in return the traditional title of Patricius to legalise his position in the imperial order. The old Roman administration persisted in Italy. There was still a Praefectus Praetorio Italia, and the Roman Senate still nominated a consul for the West. Odovacar is thus not so much an independent German king as a second Rissima, a Patricius holding the reins of power in his own hands, but acknowledging a nominal emperor, with the one difference that the emperor is now the ruler of the East and not a puppet living at Rome or Ravenna. Yet after all, Odovacar bore the title of Rex. He had been lifted to power on the shields of German warriors. De facto, he ruled in Italy as its king, and while his legal position looks backwards to Rissima, we cannot but admit that his actual position looks forward to Alboin and the later Lombard kings. He is a Janus-like figure, and while we remember that he looks towards the past, we must not forget that he also faces the future. We must also insist that every vestige of a Western emperor had passed away. We may speak of Odovacar as Patricius. We must also allow that he spoke of himself as Rex. He is also of the fellowship of Yorick and Gaiseric, and when we remember that these three were ruling in Gaul and Africa and Italy in 476, we shall not quarrel greatly with the words of Count Marcellinus. Hesperium Romani gentis imperium, cum hoc augustulo perit, Guthorum dehinct regibus, Romam tenentibus. 
End of section 51.